Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We are on our third episode of exploring the book of Exodus. And so our third theme for consideration today is this. The author of Exodus celebrated Yahweh's power to redeem his people from slavery. As we said in our last episode at the beginning, that as you read through Exodus, if you start to have this like feeling of deja vu of like, wait, haven't I heard a lot of this before? Even if you've never read Exodus, you've never read the Old Testament, all these sort of ideas about redemption and salvation and freedom from slavery. And it's like, wait, I kind of feel like I heard this in the sermon where I became a Christian and, and good. I'm glad you recognize that. Because yet again, we should see a pattern that God is establishing in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament's not a made-up story. It's a real story. But God sovereignly orchestrated this story so that it points us forward to Jesus and our story. So the Exodus is to the Old Testament what the cross is to the New Testament. The Exodus is the great redemptive act that produces the covenant community of God's people. So for the Old Testament, the Exodus is how God redeems his people from slavery and joins them together and joins them to him to create a covenant community. And we call that covenant community the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, and to an infinitely greater degree, the cross is the great redemptive act where God rescues his people from slavery, this time to sin, and unites them to one another and to him to create a covenant community that we call the church. The rest of the Old Testament is going to constantly reference the Exodus. And it's going to use the Exodus to motivate covenant faithfulness. Exodus 19.4, before God even gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you here on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then in the very last breath before giving them the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So they were to remember the Exodus, remember what God did for them, not to create this morbid sense of like obligation of like, oh man, I guess I got to be nice to him. He did, he did redeem us. No, but to create a sense of gratitude and love. So motivate covenant faithfulness by remembering the Exodus. The rest of the Old Testament used the Exodus to second, to establish national identity. Like in Joshua 2, 9 through 11, Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. They are now known as the nation whose God is unstoppable. Third, the Old Testament will use the Exodus to inspire warnings of judgment and promises of hope. Jeremiah 7, 21 through 24. And so Jeremiah is preaching this sermon 800, 850 years after the Exodus, and the people are still talking about the Exodus. He says this to the people who have gone far away from their God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. 
But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. What this passage does and what many other passages of the prophets do is they look back to the Exodus event. Now for Jeremiah specifically, he is saying to the people, obviously God commanded them regarding burnt offerings. But the point Jeremiah is saying is that what God was after was your hearts and your love. You think that you can bribe him and pay him off by giving the burnt offerings and then going out and worshiping idols and sleeping around and oppressing the poor. You've missed the point entirely. But what all the prophets do with this Exodus imagery is they'll look back to God defeating the enemies of his people, namely Pharaoh at the Red Sea, and they'll say, God's going to do that again. He's going to come again in wrath against his enemies. And then they will warn the people, if you don't repent, you are God's enemy. And what he did to Egypt, he will do to you. But for the faithful remnant within the nation of Israel, the prophets will use this Exodus imagery and say, God rescued his people from impossible odds once, and he will do it again. You have hope. Fourth, the rest of the Old Testament will use the Exodus to produce personal praise and confession. So using, again, this sort of stock imagery of Yahweh saves his people, we respond in praise. This is what Psalm 77, 14 through 20 is doing. You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrow flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You'd almost imagine them saying, if the sky and the waters fear and worship, how much more should we fear and worship Yahweh? In short, the rest of the Old Testament can only be understood in light of the Exodus event. And this is why the immediate context of the Exodus, Genesis 12 through 14, 15-ish, is surrounded by elements of worship that evoke some images of salvation. So one image of salvation is the image of substitutionary sacrifice. This idea of someone dying in place of another. And this is what happens at the Passover. The Israelites have sinned. They have been worshiping Egyptian gods. They have grumbled and doubted their God. And one sin deserves death. So the Israelites are just as worthy of death as the Egyptians. And yet God provides a way. He provides a way through substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I would argue, as I did in one of our episodes in Genesis, that this idea of substitutionary sacrifice is actually present in Genesis 3, with Adam and Eve being clothed with garments of skins. And this is the way that the rest of the Old Testament is going to talk about getting right with God. And this is the image, I would say the primary image that the New Testament is going to use to describe the work of Jesus, that he's the ultimate Passover lamb. Now, the Passover in Exodus is both a historical event that happened in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14, and it's also an annual feast. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, they'll talk about the Passover, both as, hey, that thing that happened all those years ago, but also the Passover as in that thing that we celebrate every year to remember that thing that happened. As an event, like what we read about in Exodus 12, 13 and 14, it's the reverse of the final plague. The final plague is the wrath of God comes and kills the firstborn. The Passover says, spread the blood of the innocent substitute and be saved from the wrath of God. 
And as an event, it shows Yahweh's ability to make a distinction between those who trust his word and those who do not. It also, as a side note, reverses Egypt's attempts to kill the Israelite children. God will often turn evil back on the heads of evildoers. But as an annual feast, it would allow for instruction and celebration of Yahweh's protection and provision. And it would be developed more fully, this idea of the Passover and substitutionary sacrifice in the sacrificial system of Leviticus. God loves to give these festivals and feasts, partly because he loves to celebrate with his people, but also because children love to ask why. Why do we do this? Why are we doing that? Why this and why not that? And so every year there's an opportunity for Israelite parents to teach their children about substitutionary sacrifice and how their God is a redeemer. And this is how the Old Testament is used by the New. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul writes to a group of non-Jewish Christians, and he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says in John 1:29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying Jesus is what all of those Passover lambs were really all about. Another image of salvation that we get in the Passover event is the idea of conquest. That Christ is not only the substitute who dies for our sins, he is our victorious warrior who conquers our enemies. As the people find themselves trapped at the Red Sea, they're terrified as they see the Egyptian army coming at them, the most powerful army in the world. And Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The narrative of the crossing of the Red Sea, the defeat of the Egyptian army, and God doing this amazing miracle of parting the Red Sea and allowing his people to walk through on dry land, It emphasizes Yahweh's desire to display his own glory through the deliverance of his people. In the Egyptians' final pursuit, this chariot charge towards the Israelites creates a moment of decision. Will they trust their God or will they cower in fear? And the destruction of the Egyptians leads to a song of worship. We read actually Exodus 15, 1 through 18 in our last episode. I won't read it again, I'll simply point out a couple of words in here, and I would encourage you to go back through and maybe in your own Bible, mark these words and, and maybe circle one and underline the other. Some of the words focus on what Israel gets because God won the victory, but the overwhelming focus of the song is on what Yahweh does. Yahweh is the divine warrior who conquers. So I'm again, I'm not going to read this, but I want to just read out a couple of words. Notice all the verbs that Yahweh is the subject of. Triumphed. He's thrown them into the sea. But he is our salvation. So that's a benefit we get. He casts them into the sea, shatters the enemy, overthrows the adversary, sends out his fury. He blows with his wind. He stretched out his hand. He leads. He purchases. He makes an abode for us. He establishes a home for us. He reigns forever. And what do we get? Again, we get salvation. We get redeemed, we get guided, we are purchased, we are brought in and planted. So yes, when we tell our story, certainly add what you, what God has done for you. You know, I was lost, but now I'm found. But you make sure that when you're telling your story, it's actually God's story, that you keep this God-centered outlook on who you are and why it is that you're secure 
It is not because, well, you know, I was on a bad path and God put me on the right path. Now I got my act together. No, it's you were headed for hell and God graciously reached out and redeemed you. And he has kept you in his hand and in his heart. And he will bring you all the way home. He is the hero of your story, my story, and every story. Israel's salvation, our salvation, every salvation is the result of God's ultimate quest to gain victory over his enemies and thus get the glory that he deserves. So, Lord willing, in our next episode, friends, we're going to look at the covenant that God is going to make with Israel at Mount Sinai, that covenant that will shape the rest of the Old Testament. But for now, take up and read. God bless.